Bienvenidos a Radio Menea, y'all. My name is Vero Ayati Flores. And I'm Miriam Suela Perez, and we are two Latinx friends with wildly different music tastes. Each week we bring you music from the Latinx artists that we love, and this week we are spotlighting Changatuki, which is a Venezuelan street electronic genre that I wrote an article about, yeah. and it came out, I think, while we were on break, so we didn't talk about it. So we're going to talk about it now. Yeah, it's a great article. We'll link it in the show notes. I highly recommend you read it. It's really well done. But um, tell us about this first song that we're starting with, Vito. This first song is an early Changatuki track. Let's take a listen to it. It's by DJ Baba, and it's called La Loma. DJ Baba is one of like the fathers of this genre of changa tuki. Um, changa is what Venezuelans call like all house music, really, like mm. like electronic music. We just like call it changa. Mm. And um, tuki is a moniker that sort of came to be associated with um, this sort of culture, sort of subculture, because the tuki subculture wasn't just like it was like sort of surrounding music but it was very um it was very much like a like a lifestyle it was there was like a a dance is really important to it people like had a certain aesthetic and a certain like style of dress um that was associated with it and so um and the where tuki came from is uh the story that is most widely accepted is that it's like an uh, onomatopoeia type of thing that it's mm. like the beat like tuki 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 you know like that driving <laughs> beat uh, you know what that makes me think of <laughs> what el burrito sabanero <laughs> tuki, why tuki, does it make tuki, you think tuki. of el burrito sabanero because they in the song tuki 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 oh i don't think that i'm familiar with that part of el burrito sabanero <laughs> <laughs> really i feel like it's a pretty iconic part. I mean, you just don't know that song very well. But th- didn't we decide that that song was also Venezuelan or had like a Venezuelan? It is Venezuelan. I think that there's a specific version that's played on Miami radio a lot, and I'm not okay. familiar with that version. Okay. I am familiar with like the Venezuelan folk song. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, it has a lot of tuki tuki too in it. So. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, um, you know, so this song really came out of um, the barrios in Caracas. So, like, mm-hmm. barrios are, um, you know, like what one would call probably the ghetto here. And they, what they look like in Caracas is a lot of like improvised construction on the foothills of Caracas. Caracas is on a valley. So like it's like houses that are like all sort of like built up on top of each other um, in a sort of like improvised fashion. Mm-hmm. And um, this is where uh, like Baba's from Propatria and he had, he was like, you know, like started mixing records. Like, you know, he started like playing around like, um, learning how to mix with like Africa Bombada records and stuff. And he became interested in like production and was making tracks for these huge parties um, in Pro Patria. And he, um, he had made the song for uh, this place called Las Lomas. And the song, as you might have heard in the little um snippet that we had you listen to said baila baila la lomas and he said that like people went like fucking wild for that shit because mm. they had never heard any music where like where they were from was shouted out mm. um and like it just like people were so so hungry for it and mm-hmm. um and it was sort of like his first like inkling that like he had something big on his hands right when did you first learn about Changatuki? So I learned about Changatuki like when like, you know, gringos that are interested in global music <laughs> learned right. about it. So it like Changatuki came up in Caracas in like the early aughts, like late 90s, maybe depending on how you define it. So it was after I left. And also right. like I'm not from Caracas, like my family right. isn't from Caracas. So like when I go right. visit, that's not where I go. Um, so there wasn't really like a lot of chance for me to come into contact with it until about like 2012 when there was like a series of like, you know, like small documentaries. There's one, there's one called Kinkiretuki, um, where like, if you're like paying attention to like music and have like any particular interest in like global sounds, then like maybe you might've run across it. And like, I did run across it. And of course, like, I was like, Oh, this is like a genre of Venezuelan music that I've never heard about. So it was like, I definitely like dove right in. So that's when, when I found out about it. Yeah. Like 2012, 2013 around then. Right. And there's also like a class kind of distinction maybe that would have kept you, even if you've been in Caracas, right. That it was like really, um, yeah, like yeah. So it depends. I think that like so my family's pretty multi class. So it depends, yeah. I guess, on like where like you know like who I get like where what family would have been. But but right. yeah, I think so. I grew up solidly middle class, and one of the things right. that is um, that is really interesting about this um, about this music is that because it came up in like in the barrios of Caracas and um and Venezuelan society is so so divided by class um Mm -hmm. it's not like I said like my family like I have like folks that are like you know like in you know all sorts of different places of um of the class uh of the class spectrum a little bit in Venezuela but um it's very, very, it's fairly divided. Um, and I think that part of that is because 
there is a lot of oil wealth. So there's like these like really extreme chasms in access to wealth. So there's like really, really extreme poverty and really, really extreme wealth. And like not that many people who are like in the middle who might like, you know, have an experience like mine where like maybe some of their family has more money, some of their family has less money. Um, That's like a smaller amount of people. And so like when mm-hmm. I was growing up, there were more folks that like, you know, there was like a little bit more of a middle class, like, and you know, like as time has gone by, it's become pretty, um, pretty like a lot worse. Like the divide has become like, has like deepened and deepened. Well, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and right. so like by the time that this came up, it was like a very, very deep chasm. I mean, it always sort of has been. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. What was it like interviewing the, you got to interview both, Baba and Irene, what was it like talking to them? Yeah, yeah, I got to interview both of them, and it was really incredible to um, to be able to like talk openly about some, also some of like the race and class uh, dynamics that were in play in how this right. music sort of like explode or didn't explode in Venezuela. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like in some ways, this was really everywhere. In Venezuela, right? Like it was like coming out of like buses, it was coming out of cars, it was like, you know, at parties or whatever. But because um, society is so divided by class, like people that didn't know about the scene and that weren't in the scene, like, first of all, like didn't know that that music was made in Venezuela, like they didn't know like really what it was. Mm. Um, and then the other piece of it is that like there this was never um, happening above ground, right? This, like, there were never, it's hard to, like, even though, like, there were so many views of, like, dance videos, for example. Like, dancers were so important to this, um, to this kind of music, right? Like, this music is, like, really raw and energetic and, like, you know, lyrically very witty and Caribbean in that way. Like, you know, it's just, like, very much a child of its mother city, But, like, it's also, like, the child of, like, a dance, the dancer, right? Like, and it's, like, about, like, the dancer and the music and its relationship to each other and, like, the way that the dance developed. Like, the music and the style of dance sort of, like, came up together. Right. Um, And some of these dance videos became very popular and had, like, hundreds of thousands of views, right? We're, like, talking about a country of, like, 24 million people. And, like, you know, like, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. So, like, there was, like, a very healthy, like, you know, community of people that, like, was really into um, this scene. But um, it never, like, there was never any, like, record sales. (laughs) There was never any, Mm. like, you know, like, this many units sold, this many units streamed because... It was all happening underground. Like there, like the Venezuelan above ground, like record scene, like never paid attention to Changatuki, never like had any interest in Changatuki. So it was like you'd go to like un mercado and like you buy a bunch of burn CDs and the cover was like some kid from the barrio that made the covers. And mm-hmm. like that was that. You know what I mean? It was just like always like you know, like the, you could buy like burn CDs at the party. You could buy burn CDs at like the Mercado. You could buy like the burn DVDs of the dance videos that were really popular, but it was always sort of like a very underground effort. Right. Right. Which isn't like a unique, it's not like a single story, singular story, right? Like there's other um, types of music that have come up that way. Right. But 
I guess what you're saying is that it there was never any there's not been like a mainstream um kind of pickup of it or like a commercialization of this particular genre yeah I think that like it's had its different little blips of moments and I think that there's a lot of genres around the world that like you know exist in this way that right, you we know, don't know you about and I can't <laughs> yeah. know about because right. we're not a part of them you know yeah. and I think that like um you know we talked a little bit about this in the New York City episode about how interesting it is that like New York is this like capital of like wealth in some ways and you have also these like extreme like chasms between like the wealthy and the poor and you have like folks in the Bronx like you know starting what would become hip-hop and like you know like the richest people in the world like 12 miles away um, right. and, um, there are some really wealthy people, but like the divide is so intense and like, there's also like, I don't know, something about the ways that like race class divides also function in Latin America. Like there was just like, it was never seen as something worth investing in, uh, right. to like Venezuelan mainstream or even like, I don't even think that they knew it was happening. I don't think they gave a fuck enough to like think that anything of, any cultural utility was happening in the barrios at all. Right. And um, I feel as though that's a story that's possible really everywhere, you know, and there's like uh, yeah. so many like beautiful, rich scenes that we'll never know about because somebody with the kind of capital and like reach that, uh, you know, record labels might have like, don't take an interest in it you know and they're just like exist in the small sort of scenes that they create right why don't we take a listen to the next track that you picked and then we can keep chatting about this what's the next one yeah yeah so the next song is by DJ Jirving who is another like huge huge forefather of this genre um this is one of my personal favorites it's called Banco Mortadela favorite because you like that 
food combination. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I am a big fan of mortadela, but also like mortadela somehow, I don't know, it's so funny. There's so much, um, there was a lot of Italian migration to Venezuela and mortadela somehow became like a people's food. I mean, yeah. honestly, it's like bologna, you know, right. <laughs> it's like, like fancy bologna or something. Yeah, like it's like fancy bologna, but only fancy because it's Italian. And in Venezuela, it was like a cheap protein, you know, right? Like, like it's a or cheap thing. Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, like every single day for my school lunch, I would have panco mortadela. That was just wow. like what I would have. Um, and it was my fucking favorite. I mean, sometimes my mom would do Diablito, sometimes like something else, but like Banco Mortadela was like my fucking shit. And <laughs> it was like, you know, cause it's like, like I said, like a, like a very cheap protein that like people can have. And it's very, very popular with, um, I mean, everybody, but like really like very popular with low income people, um, in Venezuela for mm -hmm. just being like economico, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that this is also part of like, sort of like the humor of this genre to like, you know, create a dance track about like Banco Mortadela, <laughs> you know, it's just like fucking hilarious. And yeah. I really, that's another thing that feels like very like culturally, um, Venezuelan about this is just like the humor is really integral to it um mm. and um and it's just in that way like yeah like very Venezuelan very Caribbean very like you know even though like this just to like an outsider might sound like Ibiza or something you know like it's it's very much like a uh, um a product of its place yeah so we've heard two tracks but like how would you describe this genre Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's like really, really energetic and really raw and fast, right? Like it's like 150 BPM at times, right? And like I said, it's music for dancers. It was like very, very much developed like in um, like sort of in collaboration. I would not collaboration musically in the way you would think of it you normally, you know, but like dancers really influence the genre because like they influence the scene and like what they what dancers wanted um and what dancers demanded really drove like what was popular um on the scene both in terms of like what was popular at the club but also then what was popular in some of these dance videos which was a lot of how folks spread the music, right? It's, mm. It wasn't just like people were like listening to it, but people were like watching these dancers that were like became like local celebrities. And one of the dancers that I spoke to was Elver, El Maestro, who um, still dances um, Changa Tuki mm. and um, teaches it and is like super fucking proud of like, you know, like the music and like the role of dancers in it and like the specific dance style. Um, and so like I got to chat with him also a little bit, which was really cool, but there were a bunch of dancers that, um, that were a part of it. And so I think that that really influenced the genre as well is, um, just what dancers wanted and what dancers yeah. felt would be fun to, to have around. Right. Can you describe the style of dance? Oh, it's hard to describe. Yeah. I know, <laughs> to I know. Describe dance. I know. I would say. I mean, I don't know. I'm not used to describing dance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But um, I would stop. say it is like also like extremely energetic and 
like really big gestures and like mm. very athletic. It see mm. you know like very athletic, very um, you know I would not be able to to dance this music. It's yeah. like it's and like I think the other thing is that like dance battles were a big part of the way that um that this functions. So like there were like dance crews and like you know like it was um you know sometimes like confrontational like physically mm. confrontational in nature as much as like dance could be you know right but um but you yeah mean, like so... save the last dance style <laughs> <laughs> oh my god not save the last dance <laughs> But yeah, mm. it was like very like dance off type of thing, except right. that like, you know, people might like, like afterwards, like people like ended up stabbed maybe, you know, right. like, right. or like there were like, and I think that that was part of like, eventually when it did come up to come like into like the consciousness of mainstream Venezuela, like they associated like all of these kids because like this was like a youth movement right like right. the signature party of changatuki was el matine and like matinees happened like at like 12 1 like the school in venezuela gets out at noon 1 p.m oh, the party's going on so like by like right. 5 6 p.m these parties are getting out and like people are coming home from work and you've got these like droves of kids who are like coming out of the party coming out of off of like you know repping their neighborhood or their right. block or whatever <laughs> in these dance-offs and they're like descending upon the subway like engaging in like petty crimes and whatever and right. like jumping the turnstiles and like doing like kid shit you know what i mean right and sometimes like got into fights and sometimes like stabbed each other or whatever like you know like there were violent episodes but like a lot of it was also just like you know like petty sort of um what we would call in new york city like um quality of life offenses you right. Know, so, so yeah, that's part, kind of type of thing. Right. So that's kind of part of the story of this genre. So before we get to like the crackdown kind of, so I would, I had trouble like uh, kind of picturing this, um, the like locations for these matinees because they were not in like a club. They were like what you, what you refer to as like mini tecas, which are like outdoor. They, yeah. No, they situations. were in clubs. They were okay. in clubs. So like it sort of came out of mini teca culture. So like mini teca culture is like Venezuela's like sound system culture. So um, I think at one point we like featured in the newsletter or talked about on the show um, our friend Isabella's article on Dominican sound culture, which is like, you know, like these huge speakers and cars and whatever. And like they'll like post up in a park and like play really loud music or whatever. Uh-huh. And, like, Venezuelan sound system culture are these minitecas, which, like, br basically, like, bring, like, the club experience outdoors. Um, and it would be, like, r there were, like, these, like, very, like, signature, like, you know, like, miniteca companies that were, like, big. Mm. And, like, they would, like, be, like, at the beach during Semana Santa or, like, they'd have, like, big concerts or whatever. So, like, they, these DJs that came into the scene, like, came out of miniteca culture, right? Like, Jirvin's okay. dad owned a miniteca, for okay. example. Right, right. So, but they did happen in clubs. So, like, they, right. they, they came out of that, but, like, they happened in, um, these parties happened in clubs and the reasons why it happened early was to get around the age restrictions because right. after like a certain age like you know like in venezuela parties don't start like they start at like midnight you know what i right. mean like the club yeah. opens at midnight 
and it doesn't really get like lit to like two or something right like it's right. just like a different timeline for things so like and then uh, to get around like the legal obstacles of like having people who are under 18 out at that time um they had these parties at the clubs a lot earlier got it um and then so yeah like you were saying that there was there was basically a crackdown on these parties after people were upset by sort of like the yeah the post party moments of like kids gathering and then sometimes shit would pop off and so they decided to basically like shut the whole thing down yeah yeah they really targeted the the clubs they really targeted them with like all these like different sort of laws that were meant to shut down the um the scene and it's interesting because it was a very like class-based panic right a class-based panic but like um the government that was in charge was like the socialists, like Chavez's government. Like this was like, you right. know, like the socialist government that is like supposedly people first or whatever, but like was responding to, um, to this and, you know, like thinking about like what it would mean to like, um, you know, quote unquote curb violence or whatever. Right. Right. Um, and so it ended up being this like really classed and racialized panic. Um, and, um, and, uh, the scene sort of like maybe like started to like die down a little bit. Um, then there were like different sort of points where um, there are like these, like um, where a mix more mixed class scene emerges mm -hmm. where like this um, one kid who's like brother did political work was like, here, I got you this like CD, like this musician whose brother did political work, got him the CD in like one of the barrios because he knew he would be interested in it. And like, they were like super interested in this genre of music that like came up in Venezuela and was like from their city, but like they didn't know shit about it because they were right. from like the other side of town, you know? Right. Um, right. and like, um, and so they're like, they really got into it. And like this, like they started to collaborate with like the folks um, in, in the original scene. And that's like where like this documentary was made. That's like, you know, like when I sort of heard about it, but then like, mm -hmm. it seemed like maybe it was going to have a come up, but like it's come up just like never really happened. Right. Like it right. did get big in Venezuela. Like other people heard about it. Um, you know, the record labor labels and shit like never got on board, but like it had a little bit more of a cultural impact um, beyond like where it was before. But now you're seeing so much diaspora, like so much Venezuelan diaspora and so many um, uh, folks who have like left and are nostalgic for pieces of home right. that they are referencing um this music that like is very nostalgic to them and is very emblematic of venezuela and is very like much a piece of how they conceptualize of home right. and so now i feel like it's making all sorts of appearances um maybe now we can listen to uh, mm -hmm. metelo sacalo by mm -hmm. dj irving this was recently uh mixed into um, a Lady Gaga album of remixes in wow. Arca's remix of, of uh, one of the songs. So um, let's listen to Metelo Sacalo by DJ Yerwin. Metelo. 
sácalo, mételo, sácalo, mételo, sácalo, mételo, sácalo, mételo, tácalo, 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 para calor. Mételo, sácalo, 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 para la calor, So this song is again like very much relying on humor and it being sort of like gross and dirty and funny and mm-hmm. um and it really uses like that like what I you know like this Benazon humor um that again like just like really places this music as in its place where it's you know where it's from it's interesting what you're saying about um you know, like the crackdown on these parties. I feel like that's such a, there's there's a few things about this, the story of this genre that feels, um, yeah, related to other to other genres, right? That we've seen come up in, in a similar way in like low-income black communities. And then you see there's this sort of like moral panic about something that's happening in that community and it gets blamed on the cultural product, which is the music or the party or the dancing. You know, I feel like the same thing happened with reggaeton, the same thing happened with hip hop. Um, that it that it becomes a way for like the sort of mainstream culture to try and control the behavior of that group of people, but that they go for like the cultural product, you know, which in some ways like having a bunch of kids at a party dancing is a pretty wholesome way for them to be spending their time. Right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. But then because there's poverty and everything else that happens around that, then other, you know, crime happens. And so, but then instead of, you know, of course not addressing the root of the crime, they just like shut down the party, you know, or they shut down the music or they say like, that's, you know, and with reggaeton, maybe there's more of like thematic things that have to do with like crime culture and whatever. But, um, but yeah, it feels like a, a story we've heard before um, of the way yeah. in which those things operate. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right, Bettis. And like, I think just how you described it, it's like, you know, it's almost like anti-blackness is global. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like the same yeah. old story. And it's a very, it's very easy for white supremacist governments, even like, and it's so interesting that we're talking about like, you know, in this case, like a socialist government that had like an explicit sort of um, commitment to racial justice, like that, um, but just wasn't able to live up to that, right? It was easier to um, exist on the well-worn grooves of anti-blackness. And um, it's very, very difficult to escape. And so they, like you said, like much like they did with reggaeton, much like they've done with hip hop and continue to do, um, is that they, um, instead of addressing the misery that's associated with poverty, right. they uh, find a very useful scapegoat in right. 
a, a music scene right. that is mostly populated by a group of people that they find easy to blame. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's you can find this story in so many. I mean, even like in D.C., like the go-go scene, you know, like it's another example of um, mm-hmm. of similar dynamics. You know, it's it's just everywhere. It's really. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's not surprising and it doesn't you don't need a conservative government to do it. Like, yeah, you're saying with Chavez and the socialists, but also even in like D.C. is like a democratically run, democratically dominated, you know, like progressive, quote unquote, city. And you still see the same dynamics of the ways in which like young black folks are policed and um, and yeah, things that could actually be positive sources of, you know, um, positive spaces. Right. For people to do things that. Um, yeah, that are, that are create community and, you know, whatever gets shut down because of these like moral panic around crime mm-hmm. or the subject matter or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I think that because, um, it was really popular at some point and, um, there were, there was a huge, a huge swath of Venezuelan uh, Venezuelan communities that were like super into this music, you see it spread with the diaspora as people like, you know, diasporas are very nostalgic in nature. People like want to like go back to uh, things that remind them of home when they feel like lost in a way in a place that reminds them nothing of where they're from. So um I feel as I feel like if there hadn't been this huge diaspora and the nostalgia associated with that, like there might not be like this current interest in like referencing it in all sorts of different um, places in all sorts of like, creative practices from like fashion to like, you right. know, uh, music. And right. uh, I'm going to play next one of my favorite appearances of <laughs> of Changatuki, which is this track that we just heard, Metelo Sacalo. Um, Arca used a sample of in the remix for Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande's Rain <laughs> on Me in like the Dawn of Chromatica, which was like the remix album of like all these um of like Lady Gaga's Chromatica. So Let's take a listen to Arca's remix of Rain On Me featuring DJ Irving's Metelo Sacalo. Calor. Oh, yeah, 
Ariana Grande did not know it was about to hit her. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that we would make the, that finally we would make the tie between Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande and, and this podcast. <laughs> and I definitely didn't think Arca would be the link. <laughs> like, that's pretty, that's pretty, um, that's pretty cool. Pretty gay if you think about it. Happy yeah. Pride. It's very gay. Yes. Happy pride. <laughs> Still pride. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, in some ways the, you could say that this whole podcast, our whole project has just been about the ways in which like diaspora creates culture, right? Like what mm-hmm. you're saying that like it's created a desire for, um, a, maybe a revival for a type of music that people maybe grew up with as kids, like right in, in Caracas. And then now, now, now that they're living all over the world, they want to reconnect to that, that sound. And so, yeah, that's so much of what, um, I think like the Latinx experience in the U S can be, is that sort of creating culture, um, as a, as a form of connection and as a, and the diaspora creates that market for it basically. So it's really, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's a really astute observation. I, you know, like if you think about like, if I think about like, you know, like some of my family members who are like, have only recently migrated or, um, folks who are like, you know, like stayed in Venezuela, like sometimes like people are like, it's very hard to appreciate what's right in front of you. You yeah. get sick of where you are and you're like, I just want to dream of something else, something bigger, something mm-hmm. um, different. And like you get, you like don't maybe like want to listen to the types of music that like are in front of you every day. And you like want to find difference in yourself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and differentiate yourself in a way. Yeah. And when you are in a diaspora like you're the one who's different and weird yeah <laughs> so yeah. you try to mm-hmm. find like home in the familiar yeah um so i think that that's uh that's a really interesting way to put it yeah no it's so real it's like i didn't i had to like leave home before i wanted to listen to cuban music you know it's like mm-hmm. i had to sort of like mm-hmm. step away from that and then be like oh wait this is a part of who i am and i want to connect to it and i have to find my own way you know like we'd go to visit Miami and my cousins are all like tired of eating Cuban food. And like, all we want to eat is Cuban food because it's the only right. time we get access to it. You know, it's right. like these little, these, the ways in which these things operate. Um, yeah, for sure. But yeah, I'm really, um, I'm glad you got to write this and yeah, folks should definitely go check out the article. It's really beautifully written and, um, gives a, more depth to this genre and these folks who are behind it. And there's some cool pictures of them too. Thank you so much. You know, I was very nervous about it because I'm so nervous always writing about mm. anything that's like from Venezuela. Cause yeah. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of weight, like there's like, yeah. you know, an expectation that maybe I have more context than other people. And I think I do have maybe more context than non-Venezuelan writers about this, but also like I didn't grow up with this. Like yeah. my family isn't from the barrio. Yeah. You know? You're like, an my outsider. My family isn't from Caracas, you know, like yeah. I'm still an outsider to mm-hmm. this. So it's just like, I've just like felt like so much like pressure to get this right. And when I finally sent it to Baba and, you know, like I wrote a lot about like the political sort of implications mm-hmm. of it and like sort of anti-blackness and classism mm-hmm. and like how all those things sort of like shaped the genre and the world's reaction to it. Um, and, you know, it's like nerve wracking. And I obviously followed like what I was told by people who were there. Um, but 
I was really, really touched when um, Baba told me that he loved the article, mm. that it was like one of the best descriptions of like how the story was told and the story has never been told that way. So he really mm. thanked me. And it was just like, it was just very touching, you know, to, yeah. to have that sort of reaction from him specifically. Like yeah. after that, I was like, I don't give a fuck what anybody else's right. reaction is. Yeah. Like, yeah. If like the, if like Baba who like experienced so much anti-blackness and so much mm-hmm. discrimination and so much like he like quit music like in 2008 mm-hmm. because of the way that shit like went down like he right. felt like he felt like all this violence was his fault and he was being blamed for it you know and like he's back at it now and whatever but like it's a lot of weight on your hands right to like like to like hold all that on your shoulders and to like be like the poster person for like society's ills when like obviously (laughs) Venezuela's ills go like much much deeper than like an electronic music DJ um totally (laughs) yeah 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 but um so after he was like this was really great I was like okay I don't go fuck what nobody else thinks this is all I needed yeah I mean that's I've had that feeling as a journalist like the most important thing to me especially when you're telling someone else's story is to make sure that they feel well reflected yeah. in it. even though like as journalists we're not allowed to be like hey what do you think of the article like before it gets published like that's against journalism. no 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 yeah ethics. of course so then you're yeah. you're you know you're taking a gamble to make sure that you translate their experience accurately and yeah it feels good when people yeah feel reflected in what you're doing especially when you're not writing something that's like oppositional or whatever you know um and so yeah that's really beautiful but no it was, it was really well done thank you so much i really appreciate it well for the listeners who like want to like they like this the genre they want to like listen to more changatuki is there somewhere to send them are there like are there some yeah yeah so we should yeah we'll include maybe the, these djs um profiles the social media profiles okay. where you can find them they're still working djs they're still making music baba um is still like trying to like that baba and Deering both are trying to like you know like noticing that people have a hunger for this and like trying to like upload their music to streaming platforms for the first time because like i said like this mostly existed like this music is mostly like in people's hard drives somewhere you know what i mean and like these djs hard drives like they were never and on like burned cds that are like randomly somewhere you know so like um, now, like, p- they're making a little bit more efforts to, like, they're making efforts to, like, upload to YouTube, to, like, upload to um, Spotify and all these different streaming platforms, which is where um, I've, like, we've, like, linked a few, like, YouTube links, for example, yep. in the show notes. But um, so um, I'll make sure to link their social media profile so you can keep up with both of them, with Yirving and Baba and what they're, they're up to. And I'll also link, um, Elbert's profile, the dancer. So y'all can watch what the dancing looks like if you're interested. Well, thanks so much for listening y'all. And yeah, as all the links that Vero just mentioned and all the links to the music are in our show notes at rallymanea.com. Yeah, and we also have social media. Go to um, Radio Menea on Instagram, on Twitter. We're there. And a cute little newsletter where we link some of the things that we're reading and some of what we're up to. So make sure to sign up for that if you're interested. Thanks so much for listening. Hasta la próxima. Oh, and thanks to Maite for editing help as usual. Oh, shout out Maite. Bye.